Today's guest needs no introduction. Liesl Jones stands as one of the world's greatest female swimmers, boasting an illustrious career. With seven world championship titles, nine Olympic medals, 10 Commonwealth Games gold medals, 14 individual world records, and 23 national titles, her swimming prowess is nothing short of legendary. Liesl's journey began at the tender age of 15 when she became the youngest member of the Sydney 2000 Olympic swimming team, securing her place as one of the youngest Olympic medalists in Australian history. Her success story continued in Athens and Beijing before reaching its pinnacle at the 2012 London Olympics, where she concluded her career on a high, clenching a silver medal in the 4x100 medley relay and becoming the first Australian swimmer to compete at four Olympic Games. Yes, that's four Olympic Games. In 2012, Liesl announced her retirement from competitive swimming, leaving an indelible mark on her sport. The legacy continues to serve as an inspiration for aspiring swimmers, and she remains a source of immense pride for Australia. Beyond her exceptional achievements in the pool, Liesl was honoured with an induction into the Sport Australia Hall of Fame in 2015 for her significant contributions to the sport of swimming. By day, she's a student of psychology and by night a radio host, and she co-authored a must-read biography titled Body Lengths. In this episode, we dive into the courage, the fear, and the determination that drives Liesl's champion mindset, even today. She openly and honestly shares her mental health battles and triumphs, and her resilience both in and out of the water is really a testament to her indomitable spirit. Take it away, Liesl. And welcome. My name is Steph Prem, and I'm your host for Mindful Mess, a podcast where we speak with some of Australia's favourite sporting, health, and business personalities about how they find balance in today's world. Mindful Mess is proudly sponsored by Medibank. You're only human, and what an incredible human you are. Anyway, we're off and running now. We're here. We can, like, we're here now. Start again, and the whole day is ahead of you. So, you well, know. isn't that a motto for life? You know, you can just start again at any time. To just be fair, unplug everything bit... and plug it back in. <laughs> As you know, the the name of the podcast is Mindful Mess. So correct. <laughs> it's a perfect example of the mess. Sometimes it is exactly. <laughs> you can keep that in there because that's the good bits. <laughs> Officially, hello, beautiful Liesl. Welcome to Mindful Mess. Thank you, Steph. I'm so excited. This is great. I'm so excited for you. Thank you. And I'm excited to have you here because much like I think some of the conversations we've had in the past, uh, we like to discuss the mess and the chaos, you know, in the active pursuit of of the ness, if you will, the mindfulness. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And that's what life's about, right? Most of it is pretty messy and none of it is really, it's only a small fraction that people see that actually is quite lovely and quite nice. So um, yeah, I think we're all comparing all the nice stuff, which I mean, for our lives has been, you you in particular have had a whole heap of stuff. I've had a whole heap of stuff. We've got all got baggage. We all do have a few bags. <laughs> even even trying to log on today, I had, there was a little bit of mess involved in today's setup for the podcast. And you know what? We've never laughed so much, so it was great. <laughs> Thank you for laughing at me. That's and with fine. Me. And with anytime. Me. <laughs> Let's get straight into it. I need I need to know how you've been lately. I know we touched on it very quickly. You've been so busy. You've got so much going on. You are always inspiring so many. So, what is 
a day in the life of Liesl Jones like these days? Well, yeah, it is pretty busy. And look, I don't glorify busy. I am not one of those people that's about, oh, you know, I'm so busy. That means I'm really important because that's not what it's about. And I don't ever try to make anyone else feel inferior by how busy my day is. But the reality is it is quite chockers. I'm at university at the moment. I'm in my third year psychology degree. So naturally it's quite full on. Um, My brain is very full of lots of bits of information and a lot of stress with studying um, exams, all sorts of things. But not only that, full-time job, I work on radio in the afternoon, so I get there about one o'clock and I work till six o'clock. So I jam all my uni in the morning. So it's it's just the juggle and it's the switching of the parts of the brain that I'm using. So my job is very creative in the afternoon. So it's almost like switching to another part that's not science and it's not straightforward and it's not, you know, it's all about creativity. But when I go to uni, I've really got to switch my brain into science mode and black and white and, and um, statistics and maths and lots of that sort of stuff. So for me, it's I do find it very draining for someone like me to try and be a bit of both because I feel like I'm probably more on the creative side than I am the science side. So psychology for me is very difficult because I love creative and I love personality and talking to people, whereas sometimes that academic side really I struggle with that. So my day is very busy and it's very structured and I could probably be a bit more prepared with my week. I feel like uh, on a Sunday, I should probably sit down and make sure my week is mapped. But of course, like everybody else, uh, before our podcast, I'm up at six o'clock ironing my dress and, and you know, doing <laughs> stuff that should have been done yesterday. But that is completely okay. <laughs> that is completely okay. And that's and that's part of the, the skill is being okay with that, I think. Yeah. And-, and no judgment as well, because no one has it perfect. And I think too, you know, if someone says that they are perfect and their whole uh, day is scheduled and down to a T, I, I very rarely think that that is actually the case. And I think you've got to have a bit of freedom too. You've got to mix it up. And and sometimes things don't go to plan. And it's about being adaptive in that um, when plans do change to just roll with it. And that's probably the hardest thing to learn. And as an athlete, it's probably something I learned really well because a lot of time things don't go to plan. And it's just about adapting that. So I try and take bits of that. And as frustrating as it is and and things happy, you think, oh, like, why does this have to happen? It does. It does. How do you stay agile in those moments? What are the tools that you rely on? What do you personally, Liesl, like go to in those moments? Well, my probably... Uh, natural state is to get flustered and to very shallow breathe and and to do all of that so sometimes it's just you and everybody else you and everybody (laughs) exactly I wish I was one of those zen people that was like I take a deep breath and get I really don't but um (laughs) I get very overwhelmed I get very flustered I get very stressed but it's you sometimes just do have to take a step back and just just assess the situation and just go, look, is this in my control? Is it not in my control? If it's not, just let it go. If it is and there's something I can do about it, well, let's do it. So a lot of the time it's just really stepping back when you're conscious of it and very rarely does that happen. <laughs> Usually <laughs> I'm just a flustered mess. <laughs> when the butterflies are just running hot. That is our yeah, challenge exactly. though, right? Like finding that that moment of calm in the chaos, if, if you can. 
Yeah, and, and look, it's very hard to do. And I'm, I mean, retrospectively, it's great to look back and hindsight's wonderful. Sometimes you go, oh, I maybe could have handled that differently. But look, we're all human and stress, you know, the fight and flight, parasympathetic nervous system, all that sort of yes. stuff, it just kicks in. We know so much about it now, which is great, but it's a natural state for us. It just human bodies are designed to survive. And if there's a threat to our survival, which is, you know, maybe our coffee breaks and coffee goes all over the floor, then if that's what that looks like a threat today, <laughs> that's what it is. Then that's what it is. I mean, yeah. I mean, let's take it back to the sporting days. And I mean, I think about for you, it would be the start block at the Olympic moment. That would have to be one of the biggest pressure cooker moments in your professional career, I would imagine, in any athlete or Olympian's career. What are the the secrets in those moments? Like how how do you be mindful in those pressure cooker moments? They're probably the toughest moments, and they're the ones that I probably have the most pride in because they are so immense. And you understand it as well. Yours is uh, yours has danger involved. So <laughs> snowboarding, it's like you've got height and you've got snow and stuff, but. It's the same thing. It's really I can't just... swim, Liesl, so I find the pool very da- a dangerous space, okay? I'm a frozen well, water I've sport. never been to the... <laughs> well, I've never been to the snow, so there you go. At least you've been for a swim before. Um, That's true. Mine's not like... I'll give you Mine's that. not life and death. <laughs> but, I mean, my sport's not life and death, but in those moments it certainly does feel like it because... That you have the immense amount of pressure on your shoulders, um, and not just from yourself, but the weight of the nation behind you who really just want you to do well and obviously want us to do them proud. But they really just, I, I assume most people care about you as a person as well. But the amount of pressure in that moment is just extraordinary because as you know, for Olympians, it's once every four years and we really, we have world championships and Commonwealth Games in between, but nothing compares to an Olympic gold medal and that moment in time, which is so short. For me, it's a minute and five seconds. For others, it's shorter. Some people, it's much longer, but it's just a short moment in time where you have to execute perfectly. It's There is no room for error. There's no second chances. There's no, oh, I didn't do that right. I, can I have another go? No, mm. it's truly. And if you false start as well, that's it. It's over. So you're completely out on first go. So, you know, you've got to get a good start. You've got to do everything right. So the in that moment of just settling the thoughts, just quietening the mind is is hard to do, but you learn to do it eventually. <laughs> I often think, and I've I've had been lucky enough to have a few athletes and Olympians on the show. And I often have come back to the same thought that I almost feel like that is the highest form of mindfulness to a point. Mm. Whereas you are aware of what's going on around you. And you're aware of the pressure in that moment. And you're saying as well from everyone else around you. But then also that enormous amount of pressure that you're putting on yourself. And then to be able to then step up and perform and do what you know you came there to do, or you know that you're capable of doing, like you said, but there is no room for error. No. And that's the crazy thing. And nobody, you know, there's probably very few jobs in the world that genuinely there is no room for error, just that you cannot stuff up one element. Otherwise, 
every four years of training is out the window. So I, I, I've struggled to find, you know, there's obviously some jobs in the world, very high pressure jobs, but the day-to-day jobs really don't revolve around that. So mm. to... It can't be like, to be sorry, so boss, I'll, I'll rewrite that email. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'll exactly. go back to the client that's, and fix this. It's, it's yeah, a bit different. Yeah, that's exactly right. It is, and it's totally different. But I think the cost benefit of that sort of thing, it's a huge cost, but the benefit is absolutely ginormous because if you can be mindful in that state and mm. heightened anxiety and so much so that your hands are shaking and you can still be present in that moment, that is I just am so proud that I could do that in that moment and still step up and do it because it's such a huge skill to learn and Mm -hmm. to always be able to know I can go back to that at any time. I've done it before. I can do it again. My life is not life and death now, but I still use it for exams. I still use it for different times where my heart is just in my mouth and just perspective of this is not life and death. It really isn't you know, not much really is. Mm, fight or flight can feel like it sometimes, can't it? But it's not. I and know. being able to remind yourself that it's not is, <laughs> like you said, you've done it before, you can you can do it again. I mean, you've achieved something that only a small handful of people achieve in their lifetime, which is reaching the pinnacle of sport being, I think, the Olympics. You've done it not just once, which most, most athletes dream of, but you've done it four times. Mm, so, yeah. I ha- I have to ask. It would be remiss of me not to ask you. What is your favourite win or triumph or, or career highlight in that time? Yeah, it probably has to be the individual golds because that is. I mean, it's so. I love doing it with a relay team. It's so much fun, and you get to share it with three other people. But in that moment, also too, you can have still a fairly poor, not a poor performance, but just not a great performance and three other people can have exceptional ones and that brings you up. So I feel like nothing compares to the pressure of doing it individually. You are the only person out there. You are the only one with all the focus and to be able to win under that kind of pressure, I'm most proud of. And also too, it took me so long to do it. So Mm. I didn't win. I won two silvers in Sydney. I won a gold, silver and bronze, but the gold was in the relay bronze in my favorite event, which was the 100 breaststroke and silver in the 200. And then finally in the age. At 15. Yeah, f- yeah, 15 in 2000, Unbelievable. which is crazy. crazy. Yeah, and look, I really, I know, I took that for granted though because I was young and obviously I was capable, but I was just so naive and I think that helped that I just didn't really uh, understand the magnitude of what was happening and then I started to put a whole heap of pressure on myself in 2004 and then 2008. So I'm really, really proud of just the individual goal. That's my favourite. But the relay ones are fun but for different reasons. So I'm obviously proud of those and I think a couple of them were world records as well. So it's it's very cool. Yeah, amazing. (laughs) Yeah, but it's (laughs) <laughs> but it's great to share that with people, but the individual one because of the amount of pressure is is always going to be my favourite. Okay, over four Olympics, which not many people can say they've done, did you have any pre-game rituals? Do you have any, you know, superstitious things you would do before a big yeah. event? 
Well, funny, people ask that a lot. And I was always very conscious because someone told me very early on in my career, don't ever have superstitions because if anything does go wrong with those, like we were talking earlier about adapting to change and things happening and interruptions to your preparation, if anything happens in those moments and you say, oh, I'm going to wear red sock and a blue sock and that's it, that's going to be my superstition, that's okay. But what happens if the red sock goes missing and you've only got yes. a, a blue and a green sock? It does everything fall out the window because these are external things that sometimes are completely out of our control. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just remember someone telling me very early that it was a bit of a thing in the 2000s to have a superstition. It was, I don't know, I, I'm <laughs> totally guessing, but someone like Tony Hawk probably had a superstition or something back then. And it, I'm not saying that he did, but it would have been someone like that said it and made it really trendy. Of course. And then everyone got on board. So I'm I always the same in action. It was Tony he's a great example. It was in action sports. It was a a thing as well. Like really phase where everyone had something, you know? There was I there was girls that used to hug trees before big events. There was the the headphones but they weren't plugged into anything to psych out competitors and all sorts of funny things that I used to like, and it almost made me feel like I had to find a ritual. No, I didn't have one. No, yeah, yeah. And see, I, I really struggle with with rituals and superstitions a lot because they are so out of our control, and so many things can go wrong with it. And yeah, they're trendy and they're cool, and because other people have them, you think you should have them mm. too. But I just never ever wanted to depend on something external, and and I didn't want to depend on it either because as soon as you put your control away in something else, just so much can go wrong with it and that just throws you completely. You don't want your whole race plan or or game plan or anything to go out the window just because your favourite sock happened to get lost in the wash or something. So for me, yeah, I just avoid and I try as much as I can. I mean, some people like Steve Smith, the cricketer, you see him fidgeting and he does, this, yes. I think there's like 16 or 18 different things that he does. That's not, he's not really conscious of it, I don't think. He sort of does it naturally. And I think that's okay if that's sort of what you need. Rafa as well. I was about tennis. to say Rafa, perfect example. Yeah, exactly. And if that's sort of natural for you, that's okay. But if you do one tennis ball bounce less, is that going to completely put you off? Correct. And and just mentally. And then that's undone the work anyway, mm. if then even mentally it puts yeah. you in a bad space. So it's, Yeah, so I just don't like that. Good. I love that. I had a coach mm. that was, was on your page as well because I thought I had okay. to get on the ritual page and then I used to have playlists and certain things that I would always listen to in the lead up to an event or a game and then I forgot my iPod one day. That's it. That's it. What and if your headphones like, aren't that's charged? That's it. That's it. You can't have it. If it's going to throw you, mm. you can't have it. So I think that's yeah. something that I've learned and taken with me. You know, one of those transferable things that you that you carry with me. What What are some of the other transferable skills that you've taken from sport that that do work for you today? Yeah, I mean, transferable skills are so important and it is really hard sometimes to identify them when we leave athlete world and move into a more corporate world or a different kind of job. I'm just trying to think, probably communication skills in the workplace is hugely important and that's something that we build as athletes, I Mm. find, very well. 
The other big thing is feedback. We take so much feedback and most of it is bad because we need to get better and we need to improve. And that understanding that feedback is not a bad thing. And if we're trying to improve something that we take as much as possible, that is one of the biggest things that Mm -hmm. is a big transferable skills because so many people have issues with feedback and really struggle to accept that they're not maybe doing the right thing or they can improve. But usually someone, if they're giving you feedback, actually care about what you're doing. And because otherwise we don't get that. If if you don't like someone, you're not going to give them feedback for them to improve, are you? So you just want to bring them down. But when someone gives you feedback, how grateful to be in that moment for someone to give you good feedback. I do struggle though, especially in media and in radio, if someone gives you feedback, because a lot of the time, and I had this discussion with uh, the guy that I work with, Liam, and he was saying the hard thing is because in sport, it's really objective. It's really keep your elbow higher, bend your knees more, do this, do that. It's really physical and tangible and very fixable whereas radio or television or anything in media is very subjective. So it's kind of your personality or the way you told a story or uh, your delivery or things like So they're really personal things. Yes. So I, I really struggled with that for the first time because I was like, I love feedback. Give me more. I need more feedback. And then I got that and I went, oh. I don't like that feedback. <laughs> That's not what I meant. Uh, <laughs> yes. Can exactly. you come at that another way for me? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Can you wrap it in a different bundle? Um, yes. But, yeah, it, it's, it is really hard. But feedback is one of the things that I'm really grateful that I learned to take in my athletic career and it's a really great transferable skill. It's something you really need to get used to. But if it's drilled into you from an early age, you kind of crave it. After a Mm. while, and I certainly, I'm sure you're the same, Steph, but when you leave sport, you crave that feedback and you very rarely get it. Uh, In the real world, you you hardly ever get feedback, constructive criticism. You hardly get constructive criticism. Beautifully reframed. I think you're right. And I think when you're training as an athlete, you're always trying to better yourself. You're trying to Mm. be a champion, essentially, and win. So you can take on that feedback, like you said, because it's you know it's trying to help you get the best performance or yeah, the best result right. but it mm. can it is it can be different in the in the real world but i think we're we're somewhat conditioned to to mm. want to need that and like you said if you can learn to take on board i think as a, as an athlete you have to take on board everything you're putting yourself and your body on the line essentially to be a champion so you're open to all sorts of feedback but when you go a bit into the media that's a, it can come at you very differently or can sound differently yeah, it just Sound feels different. a bit more personal. Yeah. Yes, yeah, and it can be. So you, you have to be strong enough to learn what to take on board and what not to as well. Your you, voice sounds terrible. It's like, oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> no, not, that's not what I had. <laughs> You're like, but how can I break that down into four moves? <laughs> have, you, uh, have you got some video playback for me that I could watch? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. It's it's but it's, anyway. it's so true, and and you learn and you learn. Speaking of that that champion mindset, you know what does that mean to you? Not just in sport, but in life today. What what does that look like now? To me, it feels like tackling any issues head on and not being afraid of 
dreaming too big. And I think being an athlete, that's something we've never been quietened with our goals and our dreams. Nothing is too big. The bigger, the better. And I love that about being an athlete is Olympic gold is, it is possible for probably a a small amount of people, but that's not to say that thousands of people don't dream of it and work towards it and, and aim for that and, and the bravery in not achieving that and to still striving for it and to still having that as a goal and not being deterred by that. I just love that mentality of athletes that nothing is out of their, out of their realm. Nothing is out of their reach. And Mm. it doesn't matter whether you achieve it or not. It's not about that. It's having the bravery to dream that big. And I think that's an athlete's mindset and a mentality that I appreciate in a lot of other people that nothing is out of their control. Nothing is not doable and, and there's potential everywhere. And I feel like that personality makes them athletes unique and you don't see it everywhere. So many people dream way too small. They just put their goals are far too achievable. And sometimes you just need to go a bit crazy and just almost frighten yourself, I think, with what you want to achieve and just go, that is insane, but I'm going to work towards it. And for me, that's my uni degree now. That to even finish my uni degree feels massive. And to other people, that's totally normal. Like winning an Olympic gold dreaming of that was totally normal to me. That's not normal. But for me, finishing my uni degree feels so massive and such a big achievement that to other people that's normal, but for me it's big. (laughs) I love that. I love that. (laughs) Well, you've just done it the other way around as well. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. The academic can seem really overwhelming now because you at 15 were standing (laughs) <laughs> you know, on the blocks at the Olympics. So you've just come at it round the other way a little bit too. But well, I, there's nothing wrong with that. There is nothing wrong with that. And I love that concept of that, you know, I, I think that a lot of us can put our own boundaries and our own walls up on on what is possible and, and what is and what we're capable of, which is often so much more than than we know and than we think. And you're right. Yeah. You learn that earlier on in sport. And if you can take mm. that with you it can take you a long way in, in many facets of life. But yeah, you I may mean, end up on the other side of the world. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That is true. Yeah. I, I think it takes a lot of courage and I think it takes, like you said, a, a lot of bravery, but you also have to be very driven, I think. I think you're speaking about yourself as well and you're, you are naturally a very, very driven person and I think coming out of sport, one of the challenges can be is to where to put all of that energy sometimes. Well, I feel very lucky to be a driven person and it's, I don't know, I guess you're born with it, I assume, and whether other people have the same dreams and desires and drive to be able to do it. But I certainly know that the, um, what's the word, stubbornness of, (laughs) that I'm very stubborn in the way that if I'm not enjoying my uni degree, which a lot of times I don't enjoy it, I'm so stubborn that I just want to finish it or just even to prove to myself. It's not to prove anything to anybody else, just proving it to myself that you can finish this and you will finish it and and you will continue to do that. So that drive to get through some subjects, which I hate so much. I'm about to do third year statistics, which is just a nightmare for me. 
but that drive to get through it and just to power through week after week after week and get it done and do the exam and do the assignment and then be finished with it. But the feeling at the end, nothing compares to that. So, <laughs> so, so I think that drive. <laughs> oh, yes, definitely. I sleep for about a week. Actually, end of last year when I finished all my exams and assignments, I got pneumonia. So that's I remember how much. that's when we were mm. first, I first reached out about the podcast and you were really yeah. unwell. I mean, that's yeah. another thing, right? This drive to achieve can can drive you in the other direction sometimes too. And I mean that respectfully. It can it can take oh, it yeah. can be exhausting. Yeah. And it can drive you into the ground if you're not careful. And I really just kept pushing far beyond what I was feeling at the time. I was really run down and I was really tired mm. and work was very busy at that time, but it was finishing up and the and the finish line was so close that I just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And to be honest, I probably didn't really have the space to be able to rest and recover because I had exams and I just really wanted them done. I didn't want to push them two weeks back and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to get these done. And unfortunately for humans, sickness does not wait for anybody. It just says you will be sick now. And the timing was really perfect because I finished my last exam and then I got really sick pretty much the next day or the day of in the afternoon. So yeah, just had to rest. The body has a way of uh, shutting us down when we won't shut ourselves down sometimes. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so when you are, and, you know, I can't relate at all. <laughs> I'm kidding. I, when you are, oh, no. no. When you are around. so naturally driven and you're, you know, a pretty fast-paced human naturally, what would you say when you're essentially driven and you're wired all the time. And and you are constantly, I think, looking for success or looking to improve yourself. How do you genuinely implement balance and or mindfulness in amongst all of the mess? And, and like you said, the chaos. Yeah. One of the big mistakes I think we make is that balance looks the same for everybody, that this work-life balance mm. is going to be 50-50, 50% work, 50% life. It doesn't look like that for everybody. And for some people it does, and that's great. But for a lot of people, I'd love work to meet might those be eight... people. I, I don't, <laughs> yes. I don't Where know. Are they? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because we only have limited time in the day. We only have everyone has 24 hours. Beyonce has 24 hours. So we've all got the I same. I was about to say that. And <laughs> great minds think alike. And I'm sure for Beyonce, I have no idea what her schedule looks like, but it's probably maybe 75% work and mm. and 25% life. And, and it's just different for everyone. And, and just being okay with that is totally fine as well. And yeah, my uni and work takes up a very big portion of my day. And I, I on weekends, just really appreciate doing nothing. I absolutely love it. I love being at home. I love not doing anything and having the excuse just to watch movies because the reality is if I don't get that downtime and I don't completely shut my brain off, my week is going to be exhausting and I'm going to end up with pneumonia again. So I need that time just to decompress, switch my brain off, no judgment about doing anything. And I think a lot of people, and I'm included in this, have a big issue on Friday when people say, oh, what are you doing for your weekend? And you say, I'm doing absolutely nothing. People look at you like, are you serious? You're not doing anything. You're like, I am doing nothing, like literally nothing, no plans. And that frightens a lot of people, I think, because they they equate worthiness to being busy and being social and catching up and doing lots of things 
when sometimes just sitting is actually probably the scariest part, just sitting and doing nothing. But I need that. Otherwise, I just don't get a break through the week. So I just need that to switch off. Beautifully said. I think a lot of people work for the weekends. You know, they live yeah, they do. for the weekend. And I think I was guilty of being that person once upon a time, but I think much like yourself, and we've probably all learned the hard way, is that by learning to somehow turn the volume down and decompress, I think is a beautiful word that you used, it mm. is the only way we can recharge or have the energy to give our best selves again week in, week out. And, and we're probably people that we also enjoy the work that we do which I think is really important. And that's why I think when you're not maybe fulfilled in the work that you do, then you will live for the weekends as well. And you you get in this cycle of not being able to find that balance maybe as well. Yeah, I completely agree with you for sure. And I'm sure there's a lot of people that do, yeah, they get their excitement on the weekends, but I just love nothing more than just recharging because, yeah, like I said, if I don't get that, I'm just absolutely screwed for the next week. And then it just builds and builds and builds where I get to the end of the year and I just can't function anymore. And I just don't think that's a way to live. No, at all. Health is your wealth, essentially. At the end Mm. of the day, I think when that's taken away from us, it sort sort of puts a lot of other things in perspective. Yeah, that's right. I I mean, the expectation, I guess, and the the pressure that you've had to manage throughout your career, being an elite athlete, it's unsustainable to say the least. You've done it over yeah four four rounds of Olympics. Yeah. I mean, can you take us just through some of the the pressures and the struggles that you had to deal with to to really manage that long standing career? I'm very lucky that I had a long-standing career because I started so early. I think Mm. when you start at 15, that probably gives you a bit of a head start before anybody else. If you're not making the team until 20s, you've probably got maybe maybe an eight-year window, which is two Olympic cycles. So I was pretty lucky to start early and to have the ability and talent and mental fortitude to get to a game so young. So I think I definitely had time on my side. I was also very lucky and I say lucky because I I think genetically I was built this way that I wasn't injured very often. I I might have had a couple of minor tear, muscle tears but really nothing. I had no shoulder injuries, no knee injuries. I I did do a lot of work beforehand with therabands and things like that. So physically I feel probably genetically I was uh, maybe less prone to injuries because I saw a lot of athletes just always battling shoulder injuries or knee injuries, and it was just constant or back injuries. And it to just, have a sixteen-year career, professional yeah, career without an injury, yeah. is unheard of. It's amazing. Unheard of, yeah. And a couple of tears, but really nothing like nothing that couldn't be fixed. So, and even now, I very, I've got a bit of a few neck issues, like C3, I think it is. So, Mm. um, right up in the back of the neck, but really nothing. Like, it's not, I don't have any long standing injuries. I don't have, and I mean, ours is not an extreme sport, really. (laughs) I think the worst injury I had was Michael Phelps hit me in the, in my goggle and split my eye open before (laughs) um, Athens 2004. But other than that, really, we're not an extreme sport. We're not contact or anything. So, I just think I was just really lucky um, just to not have injuries. And that helps because I can't imagine, like you, dealing with injuries. I mean, yours was extreme and career-ending, but I just feel like having to deal with injuries through your whole – it's so exhausting. It's just Mm. – I don't know how you do it. 
physically, as we touched on, I mean, without your health, I mean, I learned that the hard way physically by losing our, you know, our toolkit is our body essentially in sport. Mm. And when you injure that and hurt that and that's taken away, I think you learn very quickly that you're like, oh, <laughs> there's there's not a lot of other options really. And no, and I, don't take it for granted I think is the big thing. Yes. We push our body so much and so we take hard. it for granted how wonderful they are and mm. the things that they do for us and our heart just keeps beating and just keeps going and pumps blood and oxygen goes in and out without us thinking and just little things like that that you just take for granted that your body is working so hard and every single day up until this day is has kept you alive. So you know, it's it does it's working hard for you, and I'm sure people feel betrayed by their bodies sometimes when things happen and and illness occurs or or things start shutting down, and and I'm sure that is certainly a feeling. But the body's just so incredible, and in what it does, and that mind body connection is blows me away. I, I'm surprised by it every day. And same, you and I have spoken about that before. And now, obviously, we've both gone and studied Pilates and personal training, and done a lot of work on anatomy and biomechanics of the body and that mind-body connection since leaving sport because I think it's just so it's drilled into us at a young age but we want to understand it more because we realize that everything really revolves around that and like I said I learned the hard way physically but I think you've been very open about your struggles mentally with your with your mental health and the, and the toll that sport took on your your mental health as well I think you've been very honest and very relatable actually to everyone, which is which is really inspiring. So what what tools have you found have helped you on that side? You've been obviously you said lucky, but I don't believe in luck. I think you've worked very hard physically as a professional athlete to keep your body tuned and in, in good health. But what would you say uh, tools have helped you mentally? Definitely the mindfulness perspective from uh, just a mental health health, mental health, health, (laughs) Um, Mm, mm. but learning how to do that and to be mindful in the moments because it wasn't until I had really poor mental health that I was, I had suicidal thoughts and was planning on taking action on those thoughts. Mm. And it wasn't until I was in those moments that I realized that I wasn't really looking after mental health at all. I was pushing things to the side that I didn't want to deal with. And unfortunately, when it comes to mental health things, there's only so much time and putting it aside that actually works. And then it just ends up blowing up in your face and it gets bigger and bigger and it Mm. mounds to this massive thing. And then you need to start dealing with it because for me, when I was going through that and I was working with my psychologist, she said, oh, you know, we've we've started sweeping things under the rug and we haven't dealt with it. And, and I said, mine is a dead moose under the rug and it's really starting to smell. And because wow. it was just so big and I just let it go for so long and mm. and just the, it was undeniable that I had to do something about it. And I thought I was completely fine until I just started crying every day and was just not myself. And just felt like this heavy cloud was just around my head all the time. And I knew that there was blue sky above it. I just couldn't see anything out from the clouds. And so as soon as I started pulling that apart and started working through a whole lot of things and it really drilled down for me was like self-worth and I put all my self-worth into my sport, into achieving, into winning. And when those things don't happen, because often they don't, is very rarely do you actually win and achieve what you want, that I just 
fell apart. I just had no self-worth and I was contemplating retiring, but I had no idea who I was as a person outside of sport and outside of swimming and all my friends were in swimming and I just had nothing on the outside. I just, I, I didn't know how to function as a normal citizen. And so just even thinking about retirement just sent me into a spiral. So I'm really conscious now, especially with my job in radio, which can be really fickle, especially in media, that none of my self-worth is based on my job. If I get fired tomorrow, I'm completely fine. It's nothing to do with my self-worth. It's nothing to do with me as a person. I'm still the same person. I still have great friends. I still have great family. And I've all those things I've built up outside have no impact whether I have this job or not. And that's what I didn't do before. So I've worked really hard on building my self-worth as a person away from that. And I think that's a big issue that we have for athletes now. There's a lot of time that we're spending, but they're quite good because they're probably a bit more balanced. Mm. The athletes now, they're much better than what we were during our time as athletes. Um, And just the balance is much better. And that's coming from the higher levels too, I think that is starting to come. There is more wellbeing programs in place and there's life after sport programs now, which never existed back in our day. So, you know, but there's people like you that have helped pave the way for the athletes coming through now. But I think a massive one that you you touched on and thank you for sharing so openly, that challenging time in your life was um, your self-worth and self-confidence. Mm. And when you're caught in those moments or the mess, as, as I call it, and you have those reservations and you have those doubts and that anxiety and fear about yourself, what would you say to another young athlete or uh, another, you know, female struggling with, with those thoughts? How do you push through on those days? Fear and doubt is probably that they coincide and they're always existing and they're always mm-hmm. here and they're always going to be there. And because fear and doubt particularly because they go together so well, they're usually a distraction to try and keep you safe. And a lot of the time, especially fear, because our minds don't want us to be unsafe. They want us to stay really small. They want us to stay confined because as soon as you step outside, then that's where scary things happen. And if you step out of your cave, this is, you know, going back to caveman days, you step outside your cave, that's where a lot of things could eat you or kill you or the wrong berries or don't try the new berries because they might kill you and yeah. and that's that still exists today and so they do, they do coincide and it's a brain's way of just keeping us safe so i just try and think of that most of the time when when those feelings creep in and especially i fear for me, not finishing my uni degree. I have a lot of doubts about whether I'm capable of doing it. So I deal with those every single day and throughout my career. And it's just about putting them aside. And a lot of the time, I feel like when those big feelings come in, a lot of the time you need to separate yourself from them and just go, this is not me. And it's not me as a person, but it is a feeling and detaching away from that and just giving you a bit of distance. And a lot of the time, actually, <laughs> this sounds really crazy, but I actually thank Never. them for visiting. Yeah. It's just like, you know, thank you for visiting. I, I thank you for, you know, placing that doubt or that fear. And I know you're trying to keep me safe, but I'm completely okay. And that's a big one for me, especially when I'm going to uni or I feel really stupid or I'm not picking something up or I'm not getting it like the kids or I'm not getting the marks that they get, even though they do their assignments the night before. I don't know how they do that. Um, and I spend six weeks doing them. Um, <laughs> but look, and it's just okay. It's just a case of 
don't need to doubt my abilities. This is just keeping me safe and I'm completely okay. I'll step out and live my life. This is just an unwanted visitor right now. And that visitor will leave eventually because they don't live here. (laughs) That's right. And I love that. That is really lovely because, yeah, they're allowed to visit and they're completely okay, but don't let them turn your house upside down. Don't let them leave rubbish on the floor. Don't let them, you know, just, just make sure that they see themselves out when they're ready. Beautifully said. I love that. (laughs) <laughs> Did you find writing your book was was quite cathartic or, or a helpful experience for you? Yeah, I had a book writer. So I had a ghostwriter that helped me um, because I certainly don't have the skill or the time to be able to spend that time. But Did, Felicity, You weren't training as an author throughout your 16-year sporting oh, career? No, surprisingly. <laughs> surprisingly <laughs> not. That's so crazy. To be a best-selling author. <laughs> How did you not have time to I do both? I can't believe that. Um, what are you even doing with your time? <laughs> um, and funny enough, people make our careers out of this and they're very good at it. Fantastic. About being writers. So always go with the best and always make sure that you work with someone. But I loved working with Felicity. She was beautiful. Uh, I looked forward to our time together and we'd probably catch up once a fortnight or whatever it was and I'd bring croissants. I think cronuts were a thing then (laughs) and they were brand new. Well, since when are cronuts not a thing? I know, but apparently they didn't exist before oh, this good time. Point, good so, point. so this was probably about 2016. It might have been 2015, 2016 when we were doing it and cronuts were brand new and I used to bring them around and we used to have those and write the book. So I the process that. was lovely. Uh, so in terms of cathartic, probably not really, but so much fun. I just loved it. I've looked forward to our catch-ups and, yeah, she was a, she's a brilliant writer. She's written her own books. She's very talented and just loved the process. She was great. And could, you know, somewhat guide and hold your hand but also help you tell your, your story. And that's the key too because a lot of the times the feedback I've received is it's like I'm talking mm. and I think that's a great skill that is so hard to achieve in a book is to make the person sound like them and use the terminology and language that they would typically use and just in the style because uh, Felicity McLean's worked with so many different, she's ghostwritten a lot of books and she was saying just how hard it is to get a perspective of someone. Sometimes she only gets about 10 minutes with someone and then she's wow. got to write a book off that. Yeah, and she's she's brilliant. But, yeah, she just, with with me, we had plenty of time. So she could really understand my style. She could really get a concept of, of what those moments were like. And I think that's what made it so successful that the, I'm really proud of the book that was written. And obviously Felicity was really proud because she said, oh, this is the first book. Do you mind if I put my name on the front of it? Because I'm really proud of this work that we've done. And I said, absolutely. I would love that. I'm not going to pretend that this is, I've written this book because she just did such a beautiful job. But that to me was the biggest compliment that she was really proud of the work that we had done together, that she wanted her name on the front as well. I love that. Well, I think she captured your tone and your voice beautifully. Well, the two of you were a great team. And I think, yeah. you know, that at the end of the day, that's what made it. So you you have to read Body Links if you haven't already. It's a fantastic, it's a beautiful, oh, thank you. beautiful read Ta- for everyone if you haven't already got enough, if you haven't had enough insight out of Liesl today already. <laughs> <laughs> and you will hear some of the words through the book. It's like, oh, that's so me. <laughs> it's so you. Yeah. I mean, sport aside, how how do you find happiness outside of the pool these days? You know, what's personally enriching 
your life? What brings you the most amount of joy now? For me, it's really simple. Some things, it's just like good movies. I love a really good movie. I don't like classical movies. I like all modern things. And yeah, just going to the movies fills me with so much joy. I just really, I love the making of films. I love the creativity behind it. I really enjoy all that side of like filmmaking. Uh, Not that I'd ever like I've contemplated, I'm like, well, maybe I could work in films because I just love behind the scenes and the amount of work that they do. It just blows me away. But, yeah, just uh, that's how I find joy. I just love movies. I love watching them, all different styles, all different genres, any type of thing. I love books. I love reading as well. But that's that's typically where you'll find me at my happiest is watching a really corny midday movie or something. <laughs> I love that. I'm already thinking about who would play Liesl in your film. <laughs> I have no idea, that actually. That creative process. Yeah. We have to yeah, that's right. Think about yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, I could talk to you all day, but I have to finish with what do these following words mean to you? A, in the context of, of your personal life, but B, in your professional pursuits. Now, one is discipline. Discipline. Oh, I love that. For me, discipline always means doing the hard things when you don't want to do them and when no one's watching. That's the big thing. I think there's a quote out there about something discipline is, yeah, what you do when no one's watching or something. Mm. Um, And I love that because that's what it means to me. It's not none of the glory. It's none of that. It's when you don't feel like doing it, you don't want to do it. You don't feel like getting out of bed, but you do it anyway because you're just on this endless pursuit of a goal. Love that. Number two is motivation. Motivation to me is a myth. I don't believe in motivation because it it doesn't exist. Yeah, and I'm I'm glad you agree because people, I think, are always searching for this motivation. Oh, I'll go for a run or when I'm motivated or I'm telling you now, it doesn't just visit you like a fairy. It doesn't just come at certain times. It's so fleeting. It's the quickest moment of oh, I'm motivated to do that. And so much of the time, I'm going to say 99.9% of the time, I was not motivated to do anything. So just, I really don't think it exists. I don't think it's a thing. Yeah. It's, if it does, it's such a, such a fraction of the journey. I'm high-fiving you. That people yeah. can't see that, but we're high-fiving. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I think we learned that the hard way too, because if you, it's, yeah. it's unreliable. It's not there for you whenever you need it. So And funny, people always say, oh, remember when motivational talks were a big thing? I can't motivate anybody. I can't, what my sharing my story does not motivate. I can't transfer that onto you. I can't make you motivated. It just is not, not transferable. So yeah, I think it's, we could almost take it out of our vernacular. I don't think we really need it. (laughs) Love it. You can't do the work for anyone else, essentially, at the end of the day. They've got to do the work. Not at all. You can inspire, but maybe not motivate. Yes. No, exactly. My last one is personal best. Personal best. Yeah, that's interesting. I love that word actually because um, I feel people really get caught up in it and I don't anymore. I used to because obviously in racing, like in sport where it's a race for time, personal best look like time and beating that time whenever you can and that's great but at a certain point along the time you don't get personal bests anymore they just Mm. they very rarely happen you don't actually go any faster you don't you win but you don't go faster than that time and my personal best in swimming actually world records happened in 2006 
So I competed for another six years after that without a PB. Wow. Like that's that's a long time. Like I started, that was bright smack bang in the middle of my career when I only was six years into my career and I went another six years without a PB. So I don't focus on them that much. And especially in my life now, they really don't exist because if I'm better than yesterday, that's great. But if I'm not, then that's okay too. So I really don't focus on personal bests anymore. I really don't... Um, what it looks like for other people. So my personal best just looks very different now. It's just, it was I the best I could be today um, is probably how it looks rather than a, than a time or a weight or um, not body weight, a lifting weight like in the gym. Yes. Or, yeah, nothing. It just doesn't look like that anymore. And, and look, for some people it works really well. If you want to focus on achieving and being better and improving, fantastic. Knock yourself out. Just for it doesn't work for me because, yeah, they didn't come around very often. And yeah, my best was in 2006. That means I have to sit in the past and, and depend on that. And yeah, sometimes you just don't improve. And you can't always measure your best self against someone else's best self. So no. you're the only race you're racing these days, I guess, is against yourself. Yourself. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And there's nothing wrong with that either. I mean, we always were in a race against ourselves, weren't we? It's not against anyone else. I mean, at the Olympics we are, but. <laughs> <laughs> but you still have to be in your, stay in your own lane, right? So you do. Physically, I have to. I think that is, that is <laughs> true. You do, you do. I will let you get on with your day, but finally, I always finish with a somewhat forced pause. But if we were to take a beat right now, take a moment of mindfulness and just drop in and focus on our awareness, what we're sensing and feeling in this moment. Would you share with me yours? Mine at the moment is going through a bit of grief. So for me, that is through someone else, which is very challenging to deal with, but I will sit with that today. And I don't need to go into that story. But yeah, it's mine is a bit of grief at the moment. So yeah, it's a bit it's a bit tough. Um, today will be a bit challenging, but if I just sit with it, it will be okay. Like it's I'm not gonna push it away. I'm not going to pretend it's not here when it really is. So yeah, I'm just gonna sit with that today and yeah, just sit in it. It's a beautiful approach. How about uh, you? Again, I appreciate your honesty. Yeah. Um, it's definitely there's a huge amount of of gratitude I always feel, especially when I speak to athletes again. It takes me to such a happy place. And I think we've all ridden the waves, the, the highs and lows of sport. But it's so nice to be able to sit down again and share it. And, I mean, you and I mm. are in completely opposite sports and worlds, but it shows you and it, it just it gives you that, that sense of the way we are, we're driven and wired the way we are and how our minds work sometimes. And I just find that so fascinating. So I'm grateful for you and your time and your energy. It's always an absolute joy talking to you. I always <laughs> walk away feeling so energized and your your energy is just so infectious. So I'm so grateful uh, for that. Right back at you. Oh, it's so you. good to see you. It is. Yeah, it's just even so though you're on the other side, reach of the world. into the screen and give you a hug. I would, <laughs> but I, but I am, I am grateful, and I'm, I, I know sometimes bringing up the the old, our old worlds can be challenging and tough too. But I'm, I'm so grateful you would share all of that 
today with such honesty and and um and just I don't know what the right word is, but you just you bring so much positivity and and humor to it. You know, you humanize you human you. you humanize it all so beautifully. So I'm I'm so grateful <laughs> thank for you. that. Yeah, and especially uh, you've shared what you're um going through at the moment. Thank you for your your time and energy, especially in this in this time. So my we will pleasure. Let you get back to that and thank have you. your day. And I hope I will. we can do this again really soon. I hope so too. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Mindful Mess. If you'd like to hear more, please subscribe and share from your favourite podcast platform. Mindful Mess is proudly sponsored by Medibank. You're only human and what an incredible human you are.